You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jason Rosario. Jason is the founder of The Lives of Men, an integrated media and lifestyle company that serves as a vehicle for Black and Latino men to explore healthier frameworks of masculinity. He also serves as executive producer and host of the original Yahoo series, Dear Men, which further explores how men are navigating the evolution of manhood. One thing I know for sure is Jason Jason is deeply committed to inspiring, activating, and nurturing the development of well-rounded men. During our conversation, we explore how Jason went from earning an MBA at NYU and having a successful career in finance to now being a powerful force in the movement toward healthy masculinity. He has a genuine spirit and brought great energy to our chat, and I think that shines through in this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy. Jason, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks I'm for excited. Being here. It's been a, a long time coming. Yes, a yeah. long time coming. I've been excited about this since we first spoke. And now I'm meeting you in person. That positive energy is just even enhanced. Oh, good. More so than our first conversation. Awesome. So, you know, we just get good vibes, good juju from somebody. Well, good people gravitate to good people. Agreed. I, agreed. I'm a big believer in that. So I'm very happy to have you here today. I'm glad to be here. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Who is Jason Rosario? Great question. Who is Jason? Rosario. I am a father. I am a son, a brother, a friend, a spiritual being having a human experience. Mm -hmm. But I'm someone who's on a journey of trying to find balance and trying to find integrity in my life, in all aspects of my life. So really trying to find ways to reclaim the the areas of me that have been separated over time, uh, generationally, Mm -hmm. socially. Um, So just trying to find myself. Aren't we all? Yeah. So since you you brought up um, the generational and social aspects that really contribute to who we are and then some of the things that we have to unpack and overcome as well. Let's start with upbringing. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, I am the oldest of seven kids, actually. Yeah, I have seven sisters and a younger brother. I have five. I'm the oldest of five on my mom's side and I have two sisters on my dad's side. Mm -hmm. And my mom and my dad um, didn't they divorced when I was three years old, three, four years old. So I was essentially raised by my mom and, and her side of the family. My dad was in and out of my life for a large part of it. And yeah, grew up in the Bronx, between the Bronx and the, uh, I was going to say the Dominican Republic, but the Bronx and Washington Heights, which mm-hmm. is like the Dominican Republic. Say, like basically it's the Dominican. <laughs> right, right. So grew up kind of juxtap- uh, traversing those two landscapes and kind of checked every box that you would think we have to check, right? As as children of immigrant parents, we have this idea that we have to be lawyers, doctors, you know, these professions, and you have to go to school, don't get in trouble, don't do drugs. And I feel like I did all of that uh, growing up. And I had to grow up relatively quickly because my three younger siblings on my dad, on my mom's side uh, were from a different um, father. But by the, by the time they came around, I was a little bit older in my life. And so I was a de facto husband to my mom sometimes. Um, brother and companion and all that, but also a father figure to the young ones. So I had to learn how to grow up really, really fast. And, you know, you touched on, I'm just going to go there. Let's I usually do don't go there this early. Let's get let's into it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think we don't discuss enough with families where people didn't grow up with both parents in the home or, you know, we 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 honor most of us and give reverence to the single parent that was there, yeah. the mother or the father, but we don't often talk about the de facto roles that the oldest sibling has to yeah. play and how that might affect them growing up uh, into adulthood. How do you think it impacted the, uh, the man that you became? Yeah, I think most men that grew up in the environment that I grew up, namely uh, a product of a single parent home led by a woman, mm-hmm. would say that, yeah, I know what it's like and I respect women and I kind of, you know, I was my mom was superwoman and all that. And um they grew up with this false sense of security as it relates to how their dynamic and their relationship with women in their lives throughout their wow. lives because of what they seen, what they saw, what they didn't see from their mom. And what I learned over time was that my mom was was superwoman, but she was very imperfect. She was a human being herself trying to find herself, um, just like we're trying to find ourselves today. So there were things that she did very well and certain things that we had to have a really difficult conversation about, namely her letting me go as her son. Wow. 
letting me go and trusting. And I'm, the way I positioned it was that I needed to have her trust herself enough to let me go, trusting that she did everything she needed to do to raise me. Um, that was a difficult thing. So that um, not falling into the trap of being this quote unquote mama's boy, mm -hmm. right? Learning how to be self-sufficient. And but but the positives were very much that, right? I, I learned how to cook and clean for myself. I learned how to navigate the emotional landscape, uh, not not my, within myself, but also with just the people that I love. Uh, so that softness and that tenderness came from my mom. So that was difficult, right? So it, it was a difficult time growing up at times. But looking back, it was it was the foundation of of who I am today. Sure. Do you feel like you missed out on the opportunity to be a kid and make mistakes and have missteps? I think about that all the time. And I actually I feel like I'm rebelling now, you know, in certain in certain decisions and certain um, the way I think about certain things. Mm -hmm. Whereas young kids from 12 to 18, 19 years old, that is your period to rebel. Right. I didn't have that opportunity because of what I just mentioned with my younger siblings. Um, and you fast forward when I was 21, I had my daughter, right? So wow. there was no period in time in my adolescence and my early 20s where I had this opportunity to really rebel. So now that I'm in my 30 somethings um, and have had the benefit of being able to to find myself somewhat. I think I'm rebelling now in the decisions that I'm making, whether it's leaving my job, mm -hmm. um, following my dreams, following my passions, like things that I felt I couldn't do before I'm doing now. And that's just my form of rebellion, I guess. And I've heard that from so many people who have a similar story, yeah. myself included. Right. You, you grow up being the oldest sibling, trying to help your mom, making all the right decisions because there is no leg room. There's no wiggle room for error. And then you get to the point where you know you're 35 and yeah. it's like I've been coloring inside the lines my entire and you're just life. like <laughs> you're like you yeah. know what I'm just all over the page all over now it. and what's so funny because like to people who really are rebellious they still think we're pretty square yeah well but. yeah exactly <laughs> it is it is uh, controlled rebellion mm -hmm. I'd call it yeah so that growing up with that level of responsibility mm -hmm. being a de facto husband to your mom, how did that um, inform your choices about education and where you went to school and what you majored in? Funny enough, I never really thought about, at least proactively, my education. Really? It was just always something I needed to do. Mm -hmm. You know, again, coming from a, uh, an immigrant household, it's just like, yeah, you're supposed to go to school and you're supposed to kind of do these things. And again, fell into uh, a career in finance because of that, right? I majored, I did a double major in economics and finance and had an internship. I had my full first full-time job the summer before my senior year of college. So I was very much in that mold and, and like that, that mindset of this is what's expected of me. And so I'm just going to do it and fell into the trap of, well, it's either finance, tech or some sort of legal or medical profession. And I just chose finance. So I, I can't say that I was proactive in thinking about my education and my career really until when I was forced to, right? When at high school, maybe that senior year, I was like, okay, well, I'm about to graduate. Maybe I should start thinking about college. Where do I want to go? Same thing with college. Oh, wow, I'm about to graduate. What what, what do I want to do? Um, so yeah, so it wasn't a, a proactive thing for me. Got it. So you were 21 though, when you, you had yeah. your daughter. Yeah. So were you in school at the time? She was, I graduated in May of 01. Mm -hmm. She, September 11th of 2001 happened and she was born in November of that year. Did you feel more of a sense of urgency once you found out Okay, I have a child. Absolutely. Way to, to figure it out. Yeah. And but it was a pattern repeating okay. because if I was a somewhat of a father figure to my younger siblings, it was like now I'm a father. Mm -hmm. Now it's there's you know, this is my child. So I had to uh, really to just step it up and say, okay, so if this is the time for me to embark on my career and be successful, I have no choice but to be successful. And then at the time I had to do certain things. I'm sure you're familiar with the series seven and yeah. series. So all of that. So part of my job in order to keep my job after the three month mark, I had to have passed those exams. So think about graduating in May of 01, September 11th happening, November 2001, my daughter being born, having to pass Series 7 by January. Wow. And it was just like, you know, it was nonstop. And then once I was in that mode and that rhythm, it's just like, all right, well, this is where, I, this is my life. Mm -hmm. So I never really had a, t a chance to think about the alternative, what I would have done had I, had I not been a, a, a father or something like that. So yeah, it, it was it was pretty interesting. So do you think, and I want to dig more into your career mm -hmm. and, and, and that journey, but before we go there, how did not having your father present impact your relationship with this now being that you've you know conceived and, and brought into the world? Yeah, I think a lot of men that I speak to that didn't have their fathers present would probably answer it the same way that mm -hmm. I'm about to answer. And they'll say, I learned what I didn't want to be through his absence. Mm -hmm. And so you asked me earlier before we got online, 
how you should introduce me, mm-hmm. whether it's the W dot Jason or just Jason. Uh, for a really long time, my first name is William. Mm-hmm. My dad's name is William. I'm not a junior, but for a very long time, as long as I can remember, I tried to be un- not like him in every way, including not using his name. Mm-hmm. So when the time came for me to become a father, I was like, okay, well, I know what my dad didn't do and I know what he did and I know how it affected me. So I'm going to be the complete opposite. I'm going to try to be the complete opposite of that. Not only that, but I'm having a girl. Mm-hmm. So there was this added pressure of making sure that I was there and present to take care of her and protect her and all that. So it informed me whether negative or positive ways, but it helped. Uh, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I, you know, fast forward a few years, I was able to reconnect with my dad and mm-hmm. forgave him for a lot of the things because the beauty, the beautiful thing of it is because becoming a father gave me more empathy for what he went through. And just understanding that he was a, an immigrant man, not having command of the language the way I do, not having the education that I had, he must have been going through some stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I can only, I had to be empathetic to that. And so that that helped me a little bit. Do you ever have those moments? And these are conversations I've, I've had with myself as well, where you try to see the human, right? And the older you get, it takes it out of that's my parent yeah. um, to now within the context of that's another human being yeah. who's having their own human experience and their own personal struggles mm-hmm. that might have impacted how they treated me or their, their presence. Do you feel like sometimes, though, especially for overachievers, we focus on that stuff almost too much to explain away our pain or the emptiness we might feel as well? It's a crutch. Mm-hmm. It can be a crutch because there's, yeah, the empathy of, of uh, not wanting to let our parents down mm-hmm. is real, especially for those of us that are um, sons and daughters of immigrant. Fam- I mean, we know I, I actually tweeted the other day. It's how, how privileged are we that we have the space in our lives today to think about luxuries of our happiness and our purpose. Whereas for them, they didn't have that luxury. They were thinking about how do we survive? So just having that perspective now allows me to kind of gain just a new respect for them, uh, particularly my mom. Um, So yeah, so I think it's, it's in hindsight, you can always connect the dots, easy to connect the dots in hindsight, but you know, it's, um, I wouldn't have it any other way Mm -hmm. because it taught me a lot that I'm still now, I'm just now understanding the, 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 the virtue of hard work, the virtues of being in integrity with yourself and with the people around you, all of those things I got from, from my mom and my, my family generally. So what was that reunion like when you were able to reconnect with your father and recognize, reconcile to an extent? Yeah. Um, I was moving away. I was in my previous life, I was in finance mm-hmm. and I was going to Switzerland. I was living, I was going to live in Geneva for a couple of years for work. And, um, Actually, let me backtrack. Was my college graduation. Wow. So my sister invited him and the rest of his side of the family without me knowing. So here we are. I'm getting ready for the biggest day of my life. Mm-hmm. And my sister's like, yeah, well, by the way, dad's coming. Wow. And I was like, what? What? Why? So I, I didn't have a, a chance to react to that. He just showed up and every and everyone was there. So it's fine. Um, we come back home. And again, I'm dealing with getting ready to be a dad and all this stuff. And I spoke to him maybe once or twice. But f- from that point, Again, he was just out of my life until the time that I was getting ready to leave. So when I was getting ready to leave, I reached out to him. I said, hey, dad, I'm leaving. I just want to make sure that, you know, we, we spend some time together. And um, and I told him everything I just told you. I was like, you know, I forgive you for all the things that you you, you did the best you could with what you had. And um, and I'm glad I did, because when I left two months later, he died. And uh, and it was just that it was just as simple as that. And you would think that it would be a longer drawn out process. But, you know, when you just decide to forgive in your heart, it's just you forgive and that's it. You move on. And it really is, even though it's a moment. person may be involved, it is a, a personal, right. singular experience because it's about you finding healing and wholeness and letting go of um, what's eating you, essentially. Because that's the thing. We have all this resentment and hold all this unforgiveness and yeah. it's affecting and impacting us, yeah. not always the other person. Well, forgiveness isn't for the other person. Right. It's for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's shift gears and go back to you starting your career yeah. in finance. So have a baby girl, 9-11 happens, but you still have your job Mm -hmm. and all of that. Start your career. Walk me through the beginning of your career in finance. I used to work at a, my first job was at Peen Weber. Most people don't know the name, won't recognize it today, but it was subsequently bought by UBS. So it became UBS Peen Weber, wealth management firm. And I was commuting to Jersey from the Bronx at the time. I was still living in the Bronx. And it was, I had the benefit of having done an internship the summer before. So I kind of was eased into this corporate, corporate life, if you will. So I started to kind of think about I started to like find myself in spaces that I, I would dream about, but never really thought about 
occupying. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite movies is The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox, mm -hmm. where he starts in like the mailroom and then he, <laughs> yes. you know, he works his way up. And I was that that was going to be my career. Um, so, yeah. So I think it was just difficult in the sense that having to learn technically what this new career was about and studying for these exams and all that while coming into this realization that I, I am a, a black man in this space as as early as 21 years old, I was very aware of that. So navigating that. Um, but but again, I think that wasn't as prominent in my mind until later in my career when I started to kind of play in different, more, much more senior spaces. At that time, it was really about how do I maintain this job and pay the bills and do what I got to do. And you were presented with the opportunity to move to Switzerland? A few, well, yeah, years later. So that was maybe about six or seven years into my career. I was at a different firm and the opportunity came about. And that's when I started to, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but the power of manifestation mm -hmm. and the power of speaking things into existence. That's when I think I started to be present to the power that I have as a manifesting being. I was working at a company and I was supporting the folks in Switzerland at the time. They were losing a lot of people. And I was like, why in my own mind, before I even articulated it to anyone, I said, wouldn't it be cool if I were to just work out of that office mm -hmm. for a couple months or a couple weeks at a time? So the opportunity came and I said, I actually spoke up and I said, hey, I spoke to my boss. I said, wouldn't, would you be willing to send me there for a couple weeks? I'm, I'm happy to do it. And he was like, let me come back to you. I think that's a good idea. And he came back to me with this two-year offer. Wow. And then I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I want to talk about what you, what you touched on being a black mm -hmm. man in this space, right? And you are tall, <laughs> black, you're, you know, yeah. a force. Um, and, and me as a petite black woman mm -hmm. <laughs> in these spaces, I've heard you're intimidating, yeah. you know, and that's just... yeah by existing. So I want to look at it twofold, just you working within these environments. And then also I've been to Switzerland. So working mm. as a black man there as well, did you feel that you had to dim your light anyway, in any way, both domestically and working internationally? Unfortunately, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've always, I think, been very aware of in terms of my height, my, my, just my presence. And when mm -hmm. I walk into an Occupy spaces, I don't know if you, I, I try to I mean, even now we're, we're speaking, I consider myself very soft-spoken. Mm -hmm. I consider myself very, not demure in the sense that I'm shrinking myself, but I'm very cognizant of how I'm perceived when I walk into a room because my speaking up very passionately about a topic can be perceived as that angry black man, right. unfortunately. So that has been, that's always been at the forefront of my mind. Even when I was a, a teenager, when I was taller than most of my friends and falling all over myself, it was mm -hmm. just like, you know, whether it was my skin color and being able to speak Spanish, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily fought, fitting into one of the, one of the other one or one box or the other, sorry. Um, or my height and just kind of being present in certain spaces and how that might make people feel. But I'm always maybe more so now at later stages in life, I've, I've been very keen on the fact that it's not my responsibility to make other people comfortable. Right. It's their responsibility to figure out how they want to engage with me. So did you feel like professionally and or socially that you were able to thrive abroad? And I asked that question yeah. because um, I went to Switzerland, ironically, to visit a friend who was working there for a two year stint mm -hmm. for an, another company. And um, it was in Geneva. I was in Zug in, in Zurich. Oh, OK. But, you know, oh, but but the looks. Yeah. Like, you know, people don't speak to you and no. they're kind of just giving you that bizarre. Who are you and why, why are mm -hmm. you here? Was it a good experience for you over those two? Oh, yeah. Hands mm -hmm. down. I think you throw on top of that the fact that when I left, it was towards the tail end of George Bush's mm -hmm. um, George W. No, George H. Bush, right? His tenure as president. So at the time, it wasn't popular to be, I, I wasn't happy and I wasn't proud to say that I was American. Mm -hmm. But, and then literally a month after I got there is when Barack won. Right. Okay, so George W. Yeah, George yeah. W. Bush, mm -hmm. right. So, so Barack won and then literally overnight it was just like, okay, so it was cool to be American. Yeah. But so that was an added layer to what you're describing, which is the sense of me being an Amer American six foot four black man, whatever. Like, who are you and why are you here? Um, not just on a daily basis at work, but like mm -hmm. socially. You know, um, and then again, being in, in Geneva, well, Geneva was a little bit of a saving grace because the international capital of the UN is in Geneva. Mm -hmm. So it was a very transitory place. Um, and there's a lot of there's a big African presence in the city, much more than any other place in, in um, Switzerland. So it was a little bit of an easier transition, but I was always aware of it. And did you think I'm going to make the best of this or, you know, this is cool, but I, I'd, it'd be good to get back to the States eventually? I wanted to stay. Really? Yeah. 
I, I would have stayed had it not been, I was in a relationship at the time mm -hmm. and you know, love makes you do stupid crazy, things. Crazy things. Yeah. So I came back because in large part because of that, cause it wasn't even my daughter. My daughter had a standing, um, my, my company would have paid for her school. Really? And so she would have just moved with me Wow. for two years, but she would have been able to go to school. So it wasn't anything that I, I chose to come back because that's what you're supposed to do when you love someone, right? Are you still with that person? No. I knew the answer, but I had to ask anyway. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. So you, you know, have that experience, you know, and really took the, the bull by the horns mm -hmm. and making it work for you and enjoying it and taking it in, but came back mm -hmm. still in finance yep. at this point. When, not to bury the lead, so mm -hmm. when did you start to feel like this may not be what I want to do, you know, until retirement? Great question. I don't think I've ever stopped to think about when that moment or when those ideas and thoughts came to be. I think it was just a, me just being present to who I was. Mm -hmm. And this is going to sound esoteric, but I, I think I've always, I was put on this earth like all of us have been to do incredible things. Mm -hmm. And I've always some I believed in that. And just listening to my mom tell me stories when I was about when I was a kid, she was like, yeah, Jason, you used to manifest going to the DR like literally the day before. Like, I want to go to DR. And then all of a sudden she would win a scratch off ticket. It wow. and be able to like, send, you know, so things like that. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't think it was a particular moment. I think it was just a, co a combination or um, an amalgamation of a lot of different experiences, whether it's not getting that promotion, getting a certain look, not being addressed in a meeting after putting in all the work on the presentation. Like those things are like, OK, there's something here that's not feeding my spirit. My spirit doesn't feel alive here. And the money was great. The lifestyle was great. But I just knew that there was something bigger. Sure. And you touched on a couple of things. We've had a, a number of people who worked in finance on the show. And I think sometimes because of tokenism and the mm. fact that we are a minority in those environments, you can often feel like I'm the only one having this experience yeah. and not realizing that it is a culture, a it's toxic a culture. one, but yeah. it's a culture in certain industries, Wall Street finance being one of them, yeah. where you're doing the work, you're putting the time and, you know, they'll pay you, you know, that you'll get the mm. money, maybe not at the level of some of our counterparts, but, right. you know, you get the pat on the back, right. but not the recognition. Right and not the title that you deserve. Um, but there's a whole collective of people who I experience that. And, and one thing, you know, that I'm wanting to explore on this show, because so many people have had that experience, but they've moved on. Mm. So like I was in that, it wasn't for me. Um, and I moved on to my creative pursuits of the things that I was passionate about. Do you think, do you ever regret leaving or feeling like maybe I should have stayed longer to help to break the ceiling or create new opportunities? No, because I think that's an issue that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy and I'm proud to take on that battle. Mm -hmm. And I had taken it on. Um, and I'm still taking it on, but there's only so much that one individual could do. Right. And I know that this is, you got to understand, I think people do understand that this is a generational thing that not, not, no one individual can change. Mm -hmm. And there are institutional, um, institutional forces that are in place that are going to prevent you past a certain point. So when I started to kind of bump up against that, I was like, okay, well, this is not for me. And maybe I can influence this by having conversations outside of the space. You don't have to be inside the thing to affect change of the right. thing. Right. So I was like maybe this is not the vantage point for me to affect change maybe it's in, in a different form so so no i didn't think about staying there because i think it was just eating at my spirit and i just there's nothing that i'm willing to sacrifice for for no one thing or person I'm not willing to sacrifice my spirit so were you you got an mba yeah were you already feeling some of that negative energy when you decided all right i'm gonna go back to absolutely so what was the plan there what was the end game with a couple things MBA? yeah a couple things at the time my daughter was already uh, approaching high school age and always thinking about lessons what are the lessons that i want to impart in her and values education and it's it, education is something that no one can ever take away from you so i wanted to send that message to her. I also wanted to send the message that if I could do it, she can do it. Um, from a career perspective, it was just, again, trying to figure out what, how do I build, how do I buy a put option on my career and, and secure a floor? And so I was like, an MBA can probably do that. Mm -hmm. And I went back and got, got, the, got the thing, got the paper again, going back to my immigrant son mentality, um, figuring out a way to continue to do the, those things. Got the MBA and it was a way for me. I was still thinking career wise. I was like, how do I, where do I align myself with something that I'm a little bit more passionate about mm -hmm. still within this realm of finance? And um, I did that in order to transition into real estate finance. Okay. So that's, those are the two reasons. So I want to pause because since you brought up the, you know, the whole immigrant child mm -hmm. thing again, I was having a conversation the other day. Clearly that drives me. <laughs> 
Listen, I understand. <laughs> um, I was having a conversation the other day with a, a, a lawyer colleague and she had mentioned uh, black tax. And, you know, we talk about black tax in terms of having to work twice as hard for half as yep. much. But she said, no, there's another black tax. And that is making the money and like reaching a certain level of success, but having to spread that money around because you're helping Absolutely. your family. Did you experience that? Um, maybe. Yeah, definitely. In, mm-hmm. But indirectly. OK. You know, I never had to never have had the pressure of having to send money back home, mm-hmm. for example. But again, my mom by herself, she had she hasn't really had a partner for all of my adult life. Mm-hmm. So and but she's always worked. Uh, but yeah, having her, having my sisters and my siblings always feeling the responsibility of being I don't want to say a caretaker, but someone that if something happened was there mm-hmm. and was able to provide should the need arise. So that was always a, pr- a pressure. But yeah, totally felt that. Um I really haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the effects of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some journaling I have to do on that. That's a great point. But yeah, that's that's real. I've been thinking about it since we had that conversation. And yeah. how is, how does that inform our decision? Absolutely. And, you know, does it limit our risk? But here's the thing. I left my job. You still left. Yeah. And I still left. Right. Mm-hmm. So where is what does that say? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm curious to explore is this idea that with all of that, with all of that pressure, whether it's self-imposed or not, I was st- I still found the courage because that's what it is mm-hmm. to decide that. Yeah. Like that's can I curse? F that. Because <laughs> <Good enough. Good laughs> um, I'm, I'm potty mouth. So I, I should have I, yeah, definitely good that I asked. But yeah, even with all of that, I decided to say, you know what? Yeah, I still got to find my own way right. and everyone's going to be OK. But I need to be OK. For sure. Yeah. And which is important. Self-care first, putting your own oxygen. We're, we're not taught that. We are not. We are not. And we are. And it's not necessarily explicit, but mm-hmm. it is implicit mm-hmm. that you have to be there for everyone yeah. else and whatever you know people need and whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And sometimes anticipating needs without even a direct ask. And what I have seen happen in, in my community, in my circle, is that there's a resentment that starts to bubble mm-hmm. up. And you don't even know where it came from. Right. Um, or you're angry. You don't know why you're angry. Mm-hmm. And it's because you're tapped out mm-hmm. and you're serving from an empty cup yeah. and not securing your own joy and happiness before you start to give totally. to other people and giving from the, an empty place or the wrong place. It's respectable, but it's not recommended. Yeah. And and in the long run, it's not even admirable. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you, uh, you, you do become aware of that. Sure. Over time, if you are on any journey of self-discovery and um and if you're remotely in tune with yourself, you will at some point realize like, yo, I'm, do- I'm not doing what I should be doing right. and this doesn't feel right. So it's either, at that point, it's up to you to keep going or make a change. And then it's this concept of who heals the healer. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You're just giving of yourself and continue to give until you have no more. And then that's. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been hyper aware of lately is the people I'm surrounded by givers, right? Because water seeks its own level. Right. Um, and people who are uh, nurturers or just always lifting, you know, and helping other people. But one one of the things that I've been really focused on is looking at my community of strong people who serve as a strong person in their circle and seeing how weak they really are underneath. What patterns have you seen there? And I don't mean to turn the interview on your side, but like, I'm just curious. Um, One of the things that I I see often um, in in that situation, shockingly, is when you really dig deep, people don't value themselves. And the image that they have of themselves is so tied up in what they do for other people. Mm -hmm. And there's an underlying message that love comes with condition. Mm -hmm. So when you ask them, they're not saying, oh, no, I have unconditional love. I know my family loves me. I know my friends love me. But so much of who they are is tied up in what they do and what they can do for other people. And that's how they feed the emptiness inside or the hole in their heart is by doing. So even though they're saying with their mouths, I'm so tired, I don't people keep asking me to do stuff. It's it's uh, nursing a wound that they never healed. So it's like, well, um, I can I have value here because of what I can do for somebody Mm. or because I'm a good listener without taking the time to say if all that was stripped away, everything that all the reasons people love me because of what I can do for them or, or who I am, if all that stripped away, would I be enough in my own eyes? Mm. Um, so I see a pattern of resentment, vacillating between resentment, but a need to be needed or wanted in that way, most certainly. Um, and then also 
after a while, that cycle spins out of control. And then you have someone who's dealing with immense anger and it's it's manifesting itself for minor situations mm. because you're not mad at that. Right. You're mad at everything else yeah. or depression, serious depression Facts. where, you know, you become if you function, you're functioning despite of it. You go from that to I can't function. Why can't I get out of bed? Why have I gained this weight? You mm. know, why am I not achieving? I don't feel motivated because all of it is, is coming to a head. Yeah. That's real. I can I can relate to all of that mm-hmm. for sure. And I think, you know, personally, since you, you know, you turned it on yeah. me, it, it it took a therapist, you know, asking me. I'm thinking I'm at therapy for one thing. And, you know, like, oh, my career was at a, at a weird place. It took a therapist asking me, are you angry? That simple question mm-hmm. just broke me because I was like, what you, I'm not an angry person. And she asked me again, are you angry? Just take a moment and think about it. And. It, it broke me because underneath it all, I was very angry, like because I had poured out so much and I felt like I wasn't getting it in return. And in certain ways, I was coloring inside the lines, making decisions based on what I think would secure my future and everybody around me's future mm-hmm. and what was safe. But I was unfulfilled mm-hmm. and I don't even know who I was angry at, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was yeah. underneath underneath all of that. And one of the things that I encourage people like us to start to explore is how their upbringing is impacting them, even if it's in negative ways. And that is no uh, shade towards the people that raised you. None of it. Right. Right. We all give that that reverence, like I mentioned earlier. But you have to acknowledge how that might have affected you. And that's not always in a positive way. Agreed. For sure. So let's talk about you. Back to you. (laughs) Making the change. So you got, you know, this MBA, got into real estate finance. Mm -hmm. When did you decide I'm going to shift gears completely? It was two years after graduation, um, you know, less than that, maybe a year and a half. Mm -hmm. I was in real estate finance. So goal achieved, right? I landed at the company with the job that I wanted at. So all the things, but, um, 2016 was happening Mm -hmm. with all the police shootings, Terrence Crutcher and all that. The beginnings of the current social political landscape that we live in today was brewing. And all of that combined with everything that we've talked about thus far, that is me being on a, uh, on a journey and being present to that journey combined to say, you know what, Jason, you, this is the time. Mm -hmm. And then it actually came down to a day, like something out of a movie. So my contract was, it was a two year contract and it ended say that Friday, but that Wednesday, the previous Wednesday. So two days before my boss came to me, he's like, so what are we going to do? Gave me another contract, more money clearly, but more time in the office. And he's like, are you in or you out? And I was like, well, I'm in, but let me, let me think about it. Let me sleep on it. Went home, spoke to my family and they were like, this is good. Um, I was like, I already knew I wanted to leave. I had already launched the lives of men maybe two months before that um, or a month before that. And, uh, and so I was like, yeah, I knew I was going to leave, but me taking this new thing was going to give me more time to save more money and then leave in nine months. So I was like, I went to bed, not sure, but I, I was like, this is the right thing to do. This is pragmatic is the right thing to do. Woke up the next morning and I was physically sick. Like I could physically sick. Went to work and I was like, this is, I just can't do this. So I called him up. I was like, I can't do it. I can't take it. And it was, it was heart wrenching because if you know anything about how I got that job, it was the classic case of someone believing you sight, believing in me sight unseen. Mm-hmm. I went in and I'll come back to this story. But so I decided not to take it. And the next day, Friday, that was it. Packed my stuff and never looked back. So it was literally within a three day thing where you would think that most people that want to make this decision have it planned out for a year, sure. two years time. My decision came within a three day span and I've never looked back. So, well, I, I want to touch on what you referenced. Someone yeah. believed in you. Yeah. So his the way I got that job is in business school. My goal was to transition from kind of where I was in wealth management, investment banking to real estate finance. Mm -hmm. with no real experience. And as you know, in corporate spaces, it's like the experience speaks for itself. If you have it, you have it. If you don't, you don't. So in my period of networking and talking to people, I um, connected with him. And this gentleman is the the global president of capital markets at a major real estate firm. And I met with him. I went in expecting 15 minutes of his Mm -hmm. time, wound up meeting with him for four hours. Four hours? Yeah. And at the end of that meeting, again, sight unseen, he was like, Jason, I'm going to create this position for you. And you'll be working directly with me. And I'm going to give you a two year deal. That first year, you're going to figure out, you're going to work with me, learn the business. And in that period of time, you'll figure out where you want to be long term in this business. Mm-hmm. And then the second year, you'll get your feet wet into that whatever role is. And then you aren't, you're on your own. And then the contract goes away. So he essentially just 
I mean, it was a gift, an angel, right? So thinking about that and, you know, this gentleman's a white man, you know, all of that. So think of thinking about all of the pressure that goes into it. Yeah. Feeling like you let someone down, feeling like you're turning your back on someone, feeling like you turn your back on someone so senior and who's white and all of the things. It was just like, I'm, I'm not only am I turning my back on him, I'm making it so that people of you know like me sure. don't ever get these types of opportunities again so it was a, it was a very heart-wrenching thing and i don't like to make sweeping generalizations but i anecdotally mm -hmm. i have found that we have that sense of loyalty and like yeah. we owe some owe somebody something more than our white counterparts yeah would you agree i do agree i do agree and but ironically enough he told me and it, it, i'll never forget this he was the one that told me that people will always do what's in their best interest mm -hmm. so i did i did so i did what the teacher told me and I did what was in my best interest. <laughs> okay. So you left. So I left. Packed up. Mm -hmm. What did your life look like after that? So you asked me something earlier. I can't remember the question, but definitely a, a turning point. It's like, mm -hmm. I think Jay-Z said it. He's like, I got to the fork in the road and went straight. That's exactly what I did. Um, so the first couple of weeks, I mean, I had some money saved and all that. Uh, but the first couple of weeks, first of all, the first day. So that my last day was Friday, that Saturday and Sunday and Monday. I started to get signs that that was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and certain people that I, that I was meeting, um, I got my first article about the lives of men published. So all these things, I was like, OK, I'm on my way. Um but it was scary because it was like, okay, at month nine, I'm like, all right, I'm starting to run out of money. Right. What am I going <laughs> to do? Totally, totally. So that started to happen. But I never doubted it. I was I was never like, I mean, going back to the MBA, that I, I got an MBA for a reason. So mm -hmm. if worse came to worse, if I had to go get a job, I could. But it wasn't, you know, I just burned my boats. I changed, I updated my LinkedIn page because mm -hmm. once you as you know when you do that it's like all right you're done like oh if you God. if you yeah. yeah if you change your LinkedIn page <laughs> everybody in your network it's knows real. is real so I did that like right off the bat um but yeah so it was scary times but I never thought for one minute that I had made the, the wrong decision so let's talk about the lives of men yeah. and then how you've diversified since then so tell us what the lives of men is wow the lives of men is evolving, actually. Mm -hmm. So the intention was when I launched it to, for it to be a media company. And I call it an integrated media company in the sense that I wanted to create a platform that allows men of all of all backgrounds, but particularly men of color, to amplify their voices and their stories mm -hmm. and talk and have conversations around the things that matter most to us around masculinity, identity, self-actualization, all the things that we've been talking about. So I wanted to create that. And like anything in life, you adapt to kind of the way your audience starts to receive it. Fast forward, uh, I was starting to do the work, kind of creating content, and I found an opportunity to become a DOE vendor mm -hmm. with uh, New York City Department of Education. And that was great because it allowed me to, one, earn money. Uh, and also socialize the work in a very real way. So I started to create workshops and curriculums for young men that I would then de deliver as part of their curriculum. So I started to make money and actually socialize and bring the work to life. Mm -hmm. So it kind of evolved from a media company to a media slash consulting company. And then indirectly, I connected with a company called Oath, who's it's now Verizon Media Group, but they're the former Yahoo and AOL. They approached me because they had just completed their merger and were like, you're talking to a demographic that we want to attract from a diversity and inclusion standpoint. Would you be willing to work with us as we develop this strategy globally? So I was like, yeah, let's do it. Again, not coming from this background, right? But diversity and inclusion, I have a lived experience. I don't have, I don't need any more stamp of approval than my lived experience, right? And having lived and grown up in corporate America, I've kind of been the the um, the guinea pig of diversity and inclusion initiatives gone bad or wrong. So how did they find you? Like, how did they pluck you out? Like, we want that guy. I had two people. Well, one particular friend that worked there was like, you need to, you need to come in and meet a few people. Mm -hmm. Never took him up on that offer. But then one day I was just like, sent him my resume and he was like, they want to meet you. And I sent him a couple links of some of the content that I had produced to that point. And, uh, and they were like, yeah, they really want to meet you come through. And that was that. So all this education and experience and finance, you know, real estate, all this great yep. stuff. And you start what I presume was out of passion first, yep. you know, the lives of men, mm -hmm. got DOE mm -hmm. and don't people do not sleep on those government contracts. Oh, my God. That's, yeah. That's a whole other conversation. Shout out to that. Um, yeah. And just producing content and now mm -hmm. having this big media company saying we want your expertise. Mm -hmm. So you decided to come on as a full time employee there? No, I was a consultant. Yeah. Okay. So contractor slash consultant. And while I was in there. 
uh, maybe a month later, they were considering me to actually be their global head of diversity and inclusion. Wow. Uh, because you know, one of the things that I was I was very adamant about was that DNI isn't about trainings and unconscious bias and all the stuff that we have to take on a yearly basis, those training and classes, it was really about how do you create cultures of inclusion? Um, and so I started to kind of have that conversation and, um, and they loved it mm-hmm. and they were considering me for that. Best thing that didn't happen, right? Because the plan had always been, how do I, how do I continue to build the lives of men? But now that I'm in a media company, leverage their resources. So you fast forward, I connected with the, she's now the head of Yahoo News video. She wasn't at the time, um, a woman, who, a black woman. And I was like, hey, I want to I want to create a documentary. We'll call it The Lives of Men. And she loved the idea, but she was like, we love this idea so much that we want to create a show around it instead. And you'd be the host. And I was like, what? It was just great. Like it's, I'm telling you this, this stuff and it doesn't sound real, mm-hmm. but it's happening. And so who am I to say no? Right. And I want to get more into yeah, yeah, yeah. the lives of men and the work mm-hmm. that you do and, and masculinity yeah. and all that stuff. But because of this running thing, a theme of like things, finding you and opportunities, blessings literally overtaking you. I wanted to revisit what you mentioned earlier, this idea of manifestation. Mm -hmm. Have you been walking around like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, right? I know Mm -hmm. certain things like when you were a kid saying, I want to go to DR, stuff like that. But in in recent years, what has been your approach to life that you think contributes to what you have been manifesting? Just just living the right way. Mm -hmm. Um, Treating people with respect, um, always leading in ser- always leading with the willingness to be in service to others. That is, I think that's probably the number one thing, you know, being a good person and, and making sure that you, the value exchange that you offer to people is one that um, delivers more value to them than, than it does to you, at least in the short term. So really just being aware of that. Um, and then I, I don't know, I just, again, it's going to sound esoteric, but I, I do believe that when I close my eyes and I envision certain things, if I can visualize it, it's going to, it's already done. And I'll tell you everything that's happened to me in the last five years, not just two years has been a product of that process. Everything from the person that I'm with right now, like physically, the way she acts, the family she comes from, like everything I wrote down and I wish I had my laptop now, but I have a list of, I named it my ideal queen. Wow. And it's like 50 items on there. She probably has 48. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it sounds crazy, but that's, that's my life. And I, and then I look, and then that causes me to look back at my entire life. And it's just like, there was never a moment where if I really wanted something like really, really wanted it and then did the work to get there that it didn't happen. There was not one thing. And I'm not saying that I haven't failed because I failed miserably in, in a lot of ways, but um, this idea of just bringing things to life that you really believe in, that you hold in your soul is, is very real. And I wholeheartedly believe that. I know there are detractors who are going to listen to the show totally. and be like, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I try to bring value yeah. to people and, and everything is topsy-turvy right now. For me... That doesn't mean that you don't have to do the work, like do the work. Exactly. Right. And this is where I think there's a blind spot for a lot of people who listen to these sound bites on manifestation and self-actualization and calling things to you. They think because they put a vision board up and like they say these things are going to happen that they magically right. appear without actually uh, taking tactical steps to get there. The energy that you put out, that positive energy combined with the work, I think accelerates the process and mm-hmm. you'll get those little markers that mm-hmm. show you, even if it doesn't fully manifest, that I'm on the right track. Yeah. But you absolutely absolutely have to put in the work and it's not an overnight process. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I had to get into and be serious about was enjoying the now, even when it wasn't perfect. And um, getting to the point where I'm like, you know what, how do I have joy even before, you know, the, the career opportunity that I want shows up or before this podcast blows up or before the right romantic partner? How do I live in the now and be happy with here, Mm -hmm. with what's here and finding the joy in that and finding the lessons and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a key component. It doesn't mean you knock it out of the park every day. We all have those days where we're like, Mm -hmm. you know, this sucks, but trying to live there more than you do in a state of bitterness yeah. or looking around the corner for the next thing that you really want. And look, don't get me wrong. I think, well, let me backtrack for a minute because I don't want to blow. I don't want to understate this. The power of being able to uh, establish and build relationships and cultivate them mm-hmm. is probably the secret sauce that's also missing. Right. So it's mm-hmm. yes, doing the work and manifesting, journaling, all that. But if you can't foster relationships with people that might be in a position to open doors you don't even know exist, then you're not 
then at that point, it doesn't matter how good or talented you are. Those opportunities need to be created. Right. Right. So but um, in terms of man, I forgot what I was going to say. You were saying something that I wanted to address. Sorry. What was the last thing you just said? I want to go back to that. So I was talking about um, the importance of finding joy in the present. Oh, yeah. Being in the now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's hard. And that, admittedly, and and I know we want to talk, talk talk about mental health, but I sometimes have my um, my worst days on the sunniest of days. Sure, like it could be beautiful, like weather can be beautiful, perfect outside, and I'm at home under my covers, and I don't want to move. And that's because of the what you just said is the the practice of being in the present and knowing that things will have a natural rhythm Mm -hmm. and knowing that things will happen when they're supposed to happen. Absolutely. And people take that as like a cliche. And I'll speak specifically to like marriage and family, especially for women. Mm -hmm. When people, someone says things will happen when they, when they're supposed to happen. Um, And as a woman, I've heard people say it like, well, I'm getting older. Like I have a finite amount of time to, to check you know, these boxes and what happens if it doesn't happen when I need it to. Mm. Um, but also, I think sometimes things are withheld because we we think we're ready to receive, but we're not. That's so big. It's yeah. It's like get get out of your own way, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and then also, who's, and this is going to sound a little controversial, and I know that I'm speaking from a position of privilege as a man, right? Because I don't have the biological component that you all have to deal with as far as bearing children. But what if your journey is to live life as a single unit, mm-hmm. right? Or what is what if your journey of building a family looks non-traditional, sure. right? So it's just expanding what your definition of, of the things that you think you want or think you need, and then being open to things coming to you in ways that you didn't necessarily expect them to. Absolutely. Which is a journey personally that I've had to ask those questions and say, okay, like, you know, if I got to be 45, despite all this, like Mm -hmm. proclaiming what I want in my life, if I got to be 45. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Am I? And I'm still single. Would I be okay with that? And it took a while to unpack that and answer that question. And I got to the point where I said, you know what? I may not be okay with it today, but I could, in certain circumstances, get to be okay with it. But what I would not be okay with is if I'm 45 single and then I also didn't manifest my vision for other areas of my mm, life because well, I was so go. busy chasing, right. you know, this one thing or worried right. about this one thing. Yeah. So how do I get fulfilled in the other ways? And how do I put good out to the world and figure out what my purpose is outside of this one element um, that would make me feel like I do have joy? And it, it doesn't discount what you feel like you might be lacking. We're human mm. beings. Yeah. We're designed to do this thing called life with someone, right? We, we desire human in, interaction. But like you said, that may not manifest in a traditional sense. Mm-hmm. It, it may mean one day that you decide I'm going to be a single mom by choice mm-hmm. where there's a foster child that mm-hmm. I'm going to take in or I'm going to meet. I may meet somebody in my third act, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what happens in the interim. So um, it I am always encouraging people to get about the business of working on the things that you can control, yeah. becoming emotionally healthy, creating a career that you enjoy and is thriving, finding passion projects, giving back, imparting the wisdom that you've, you know, that you've developed over the years. And when you do that, your life is full with those other things. It doesn't mean that you don't feel that longing, but the bitterness around not having it is going to either completely dissipate or at least diminish. Yeah. And I think that's an important, an important process. And people don't take the time to unpack those issues because they're just so around. This is what I don't have. Mm. Um, and I think talking about unpacking is a good segue into talking about therapy. Um, we've talked about on the show this. There's still a stigma within communities of color around uh, reaching out for help and working through those issues with a trained professional. I am finding in, in my experience that more black women are, you know, saying I, you know, I need to go speak to someone. Black men, not all, but many are still resistant yeah. to that. And why do you think that is? I think it's one we're socialized. The, the only emotion that we're socialized not or that it's okay to express is anger. Mm-hmm. Everything else is is not necessarily um, encouraged. So when you think about the way we're socialized as men, the, the patriarchy is real. And, and patriarchy is something that hurts not just women, but it also hurts men mm-hmm. and, and in violent ways in the sense that it manifests in men in this notion that you can't emote and that you can't necessarily be in tune with yourself. Um, and being in tune with yourself is the first ingredient in understanding that there's something wrong and that you need to seek help for. Um, so I think that is the work. That's the work that I'm trying, that I'm embarking on is mm-hmm. to try to help 
peel that onion back, if you will, and, and try to help men understand that it is okay to not be okay. And that's the first step. But I think it, there's, there's a lot of things. I think men, the, the don't let society tell you that men aren't having these conversations. They are having the conversations. They're just not having often enough and they're not having, they're not having them publicly. Mm-hmm. But rest assured that, you know, men are talking to each other about um, ways in which they might feel like they're not living up to expectations, either internal expectations or external ones. And that's causing a lot of consternation inside of them. And unfortunately, though, it's just the ways that we allow that to the way we process that and the way it manifests is in anger, is in womanizing, is in these toxic behaviors that we're now being called on to examine through Me Too and mm-hmm. Time's Up and all that. But there is there are conversations that are have that are being had. It's just that now we have to create the framework to make it okay for men to acknowledge that they do need help. Mm-hmm. And that has to occur in community. That can't just happen men in isolation and women in isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in my I, opinion. No, I, I totally mm-hmm. hear you. One of the things that I, I'm always exploring um, is this balance between women, black women, especially having the ability to speak their truth um, without this becoming uh a contentious conversation always, right? And and one of the things that I hear specific, particularly with women of black women of a certain age, um, who've been around the block in the dating world, may have been married or trying, you know, engaged, never made it down the aisle, is this general concept of like black men are their ego won't allow them to celebrate our success. They they need to cut us down to feel good about themselves because of what they're dealing with mm-hmm. internally. Um, all they do is dog us out. They have baggage. They don't want to talk about said baggage, et cetera. And making these, you know, these generalizations um, in, a, in a very real way. And what I have learned is that when you challenge that in any way as a woman, especially as a black woman, you get labeled as you know, you're just a pick me chick. Mm. You know, you, you you're extending grace because you want them True. to accept you. And, and, and to me, those are two extremes that are, do not reflect reality. So as women, is there a balance to be to be struck between speaking your truth, but not putting these generalizations yeah. on on black men as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll call it third wave feminism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when you think about the traditional the traditional uh, or the initial wave of feminism, it was almost anti-male mm-hmm. in the sense and it's extreme in its extreme forms in that it was more about under the guise of wanting to gain gender equality with men. It was less that and more about gaining equal power to men. Right. Just I want to be just as powerful as that guy. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily I want to be equal. Um, and so then it evolved. And now we're, I think, entering into this third wave of feminism where it's men are being held accountable. We all are. But it's also understanding that, as I mentioned before, patriarchy hurts and harms both of us. Just it just looks differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you, it looks uh, it, it manifests in glass ceilings and it manifests in um, sexual harassment and misogyny and catcalling and all that. For us, is it's a, the violence of being separated from our emotions mm-hmm. and from our intuition. So what, what I think needs to happen and where the balance, I think, is, is that, again, in, if healing has to occur, in community and what we're really talking about is building stronger communities, then men have to take it upon ourselves to do the work of healing, of um, gaining integrity. And I don't mean integrity from the standpoint of telling the truth and being honest. Integrity from the Latin uh, integras is coming together and combining, right? So this idea of combining all of the broken parts that exist inside you as as men, um, doing the work to heal that and then coming to the table a lot fuller for the women in our lives. I think that's where the, the balance and I don't mean I don't say any of this and, I, and I'm very vocal about this, that I'm very careful about um, assigning responsibility to black women uh, for our healing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where maybe you get some yeah. some some pushback. I'm glad you spoke. To yeah, because women are like, nah, like I don't. I don't want any part of this. You know, men have been quote unquote trash. This hashtag men, tra- men are trash. Is it, it sucks, but that's a very real thing. And that comes from a place of pain. So if you can acknowledge that it comes from a place of pain and a particular experience that you might have had, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always respectful of that. But then let's step outside of that and, and think about what it is that we really want. Mm-hmm. And what we want is stronger communities. And we can't do that in isolation. Absolutely. And two, I think as women, one of the things that I had to work on and explore from previous bad situations is if the right thing showed up, could I recognize it? Well, that's the thing. And and could I trust 
that this was the right thing and have peace in it and be able to receive because mm -hmm. because it's what you want you think you can mm -hmm. you think you can recognize it and someone's integrity mm -hmm. um and their ability to be genuine but when you do have this narrative that's been playing for years and years and years and maybe had, had not had the right father figure as well and all that stuff um sometimes when it actually shows up, you realize you're not ready either. That's a great point. And, and I love that you brought that up because I, I know a lot of women that say, I want the guy that's going to show up X, Y, and Z. And when he does show up, for example, I want a guy that's going to be able to articulate his traumas and, an emo and his emotions in a healthy, in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. But when they get that, it's just like, I don't know. I don't like how this right, feels. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. So then what, so then what do you really want? Right. And I think that's where, again, uh, the socialization that we've both have succumbed to or have been exper have experienced is that women somewhere, some women, not all women want the traditional patriarchal man, right. That's going to provide and protect quote unquote. Um, and, and I think women that say, well, you know, I've gotten that and he's still messed up. I don't think you, you know what that looks like. None of us do because we're still we're trying to discover that right now is men are trying to discover what that looks like in healthy ways. And I think for a, for, for to a certain extent, women haven't experienced that mm -hmm. consistently. And it's going to take a lot of communication, yeah. and a lot of work, like even when all the core parts are there. Yeah. We all are bringing baggage yeah. and social constructs and how we grew yeah. up. And then if you're talking about race, like what we're dealing with out in the world. So even when it does show up, it may not show up with in the package that you thought it would or, you know, things are not exactly right. Yeah. They don't check all the boxes, but um, not lacing up your running shoes when the, you know, the two out of the 50 aren't, aren't there Stay. as well, you know, Stay. and, and yeah. explore. And it, it doesn't I'm not saying that anybody should, uh, you know, accept something that isn't up to snuff, but make making sure is there. There's something there to work with yeah. and exploring how I might be able to make this work, you know, for and, me. Yeah, I'm not saying settle, mm -hmm. right? I think that's what you're saying. Uh, but I also, let me just say this, playing devil's advocate, in a city like New York, mm -hmm. I do acknowledge that it's very difficult to be a single woman. Very, very. Because you have, first and foremost, the number outweigh, the numbers outweigh mm -hmm. or in my favor as a, as a man than they are in your favor. And then on top of that, you have institutional systems of oppression that make it that much more difficult. You have racism, you have mass incarceration. Incarceration. You have all of these things. And then you have the guys on the other side that know that the numbers are in their favor and for that reason don't want to settle. So it's really difficult. And I acknowledge that. And I mean, I've and I say all of this about like <clears throat> being open, having been on dates where a, a black man, you know, Harvard educated, sat across from me mm -hmm. and said, yeah, my mom keeps asking me why I'm in my 30s and I won't settle down. And I told her I'm a black man with a Harvard MBA. I don't have to. There you go. That was my, my pick of the litter. Like you're telling somebody this on a date. Yikes. right? Someone who's made clear that yeah. like it's my intention to move towards marriage and mm -hmm. family. So which but that all takes me back to my other point, which is why I personally had to get honest with myself and say, given the numbers. Right. And, and given the difficulty. And then you add to the fact that I do have the education that I do. I do make the money that I yeah. do, which is another layer of difficulty. Yeah. If you want to start talking about ego and all that other stuff, right. if it didn't happen, where is my joy coming from? Yeah. And where is my sense of fulfillment? And am I enough if I'm not able to check that box? Um, I'm not saying it's fair. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, mm. but you've got to do that work to say. And it's almost like a two-edged sword because you're like, well, I'm going to do the work to be ready to receive. But if it doesn't show up, you well, know. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say earlier when you were saying that it's what you described in, in some ways is very uh, action-oriented, mm -hmm. right? And we are A-type people. Yeah. We're like, there's a problem. We're going to figure out what the solution to that problem is and execute. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I've had to learn and I think a lot of us have to learn is this act of surrender. Sure. It's like, yeah, do all the things and maybe consider dating out of your race or, or uh, um, being willing to receive things in, in non-traditional ways. But then also there's a certain level of all right, I'm just going to let this be mm -hmm. whatever it's going to be. It'll be. And you have to trust that it'll it'll always work out in the end. Right. And that's difficult to do for people like us who are probably a type folks. For sure. And it's more difficult to do when you're watching other people check the yeah. boxes. Yeah. Because, you know, I look at my white friends that I've had over the years through schooling. They make a decision like mm -hmm. I'm going to find a husband. Mm -hmm. And just like they said, I'm going to get a degree. It just happens. Like, yep. and, you know, we don't have, I don't think we have a lot of white listeners, mm -hmm. but I'm sure somebody will hear this and be mm -hmm. like, that's not true. I'm white and I'm still waiting. But I watched that process unfold in a seamless timeline um, for, for others. So it is, that's a whole process and journey of being like, I'm just going to let it happen surrender, and, and, yeah. and surrender. Um, but if you can do it and, and do it for real, the, the peace it's something that can't be put into words, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't mean that it's always consistent. There's some days that are better than others. 
But the point that I was getting at is you might have that piece, but then we're contending with social media and like other people reaching it. So you have peace one day and then your other friend gets engaged or you see somebody get engaged, have the, you know, the husband who's great and the child in the house. And then it takes you, you know, it sets you back. So I think it's a constant process. There's never a a point of arriving. Um, it's you've got to continue to explore that yeah. for sure. But I'm I'm grateful that you're having these conversations uh, on the male side of things because they need to be had. And it, it needs to happen outside of this whole context of here's everything that's wrong with black women versus here's everything that's wrong with black men. Yeah. Like, you know, t- let's take it out of that and just say we're yeah. going to do the work. And yeah. here's the baggage we all we're all bringing. And, and how can we help each other and uplift as we, we start to work? That's what it. it's about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so shifting gears a little bit. Yeah. Tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day? I feel like I gave you a whole, all of a whole my lot. examples. But you right? know we asked the question no, anyway. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no, I, um, I want to give you another one. I'm just trying to think. A time when I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the plight of black and brown folks I mean, every day, right? But, <laughs> it is kind of a quick that's, trick question. That's, an, yeah. <laughs> that's another question. That's another uh, convo. Time where I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I think it's just um, without naming names and without... Um, trying to respect people's privacy. Mm-hmm. But also, I think this is an example that I think speaks to how difficult it is. I'm co-parenting a daughter mm-hmm. and that's, it's not a day. It's like, that's just the experience of co-parenting is a constant moment of having to be extraordinary on ordinary days because there's instances in which there are values that you want to impart in that child that may or may not always be reinforced on the other side. And so my daughter and I had a really difficult year this year. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened earlier in 2018 and we didn't speak for months and it was contentious and it got disrespectful, um, on all three of our parts, her mom included. And, um, and it was, a. I wrestled with how much did I need to become estranged from my daughter Mm -hmm. for my own survival, right. For my own sanity. Right. And, and she's 17 now and all that. So she's not a child and she's not a baby anymore. So it was a very real consideration for me because of what happened. We're now like in the last maybe month or two, she's been reaching out. Mm-hmm. She's about to graduate from college or from high school. She got into Penn State the other day. Yeah. So she's, you know, so we, we're rekindling our relationship. But that's it's it's hard because trying to separate my humanness from the fact that I'm a dad brings a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, just thinking about how much separation do I need to, do I need right now for my own sanity for my daughter brings about it, you know guilt and things that are unresolved for my own dad Absolutely. not being there. So it's kind of like, man, you know, what do I do? So it, it it always works out, and I think you just pray a lot and you you have conversations. But the one thing that I try to continue to do, and the extraordinary piece of the of the um, maybe not extraordinary day. Uh, day is leading with love, Mm -hmm. you know, constantly telling her on days that she didn't want to talk to me, sending her a quick message, sending her a card for Christmas, you know, sending her something else for her birthday, just to let her know that it, nothing that she could ever do would make me stop loving her. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm hoping that that's something that she'll realize when she's our age. Absolutely. And, and navigating how to be present without actually being present as well. And, you know, because there are plenty of folks in that situation that say, okay, this isn't working and I'm going to run, but trying to, to maintain those connections, even if the ties that bind look a little bit differently yep. than, than they did a few years ago. Yeah. And and who am I if I'm doing all this work to help empower men and helping them to really just transcend the things that we've been taught? We would have, you know, men are naturally be like, well, F this, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to live in, I'm trying to walk the walk that I'm talking. Sure. And there's so many more things that I, I want to unpack mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. but I'm conscious of time. Mm-hmm. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what's on the horizon. Yeah. For you. Yeah, well, I'm excited. There's a lot going on and mm-hmm. it's all happening so fast. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the blessings, but sometimes I'm like, what, like, why is this all happening? So I am excited about my new show on Yahoo News that's ma- launching on March 6th. It's called Dear Men mm-hmm. and it explores the evolution of manhood. So we're having conversations around every and all topics that uh, we've touched on and things that I've already kind of started talking about through the lives of men. So the idea of how are men grappling with this new normal that it, that Me Too has brought about, mm-hmm. right? And how we've been forced to look in the mirror and ask some hard questions and examine our behaviors to what does a good father look like to relationships? What's a healthy relationship? What's not mental health? So we're going to cover all of that. And um, I'm excited about the show because we got some really notable people on there. 
here. Uh, I'm also launching my own podcast, so we're going to probably have to switch switch seats. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be sw- sw- switching seats soon. It's called Hey Jason. Um, so we'll, we'll be launching that and then just continuing to do the Lives of Men stuff. Uh, I am planning our second annual wellness conference, nice. hopefully for May 4th. Again, just to kind of bring into one space men and women of color to engage and, and talk about these things, uh, particularly mental health and, and overall well-being. So a lot going on. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. It's a blessing. And, it, you know, some years are about reaping. Some years are about sowing. This year for me is a little bit of both, mm-hmm. but I'm excited. I'm excited for you. I uh, you. Uh, We were joking before we started recording about, you know, catching you now before we couldn't catch you. <laughs> and But I feel like... Um, I'm a good judge of where people are going, and I think Owen's going to come calling. Yeah, well, hey, <laughs> Oprah, I know you're going to listen to this Holla. at some point. Get at me. <laughs> For sure. So I'm I'm looking Thank forward you. to wa- watching your journey, but not only that, being a part of it in any way that I can. You know, and same support. here. Yes, For sure. Here. So thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you, Delisha. I appreciate it. And where can people find you online? They can find me on pretty much all social platforms at Jason two underscores Rosario and the lives of men. Sure. Of course. And you said your show's coming out March 6th. March 6th. Is the website live yet? The Lives of Men is live. Lives of Men is, yeah. is, is live. Yeah. Dear Men. Dear Men, not yet. Not yet. Not okay. yet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a, a whole marketing campaign in the next week that we're going to be launching. Cool. So I think Demarcus was joking that um, I'm going to be on the Today Show and all that. I'm actually going to be See? on the Today <laughs> Show soon. <laughs> so, yeah, look out for that. Very cool. Yeah. So those of you out there, especially our male listeners, um, go check out The Lives of Men. Yeah, thank you. I shouldn't say especially our male because I think there's a lot for women to learn here too yeah. um, and get a different perspective as yeah. well. But follow Jason because he's on a trajectory and I think it's one of those that has left the station and is about <laughs> to accelerate in a I'm very so real grateful. way. Thank you. Um, and I'm grateful that, that that you came just to speak to us before that rocket ship well, took look, completely off. You make, you make time for good people and for projects that you hold dear and near and this is this is important. You know, and it's I I will see y'all at the top. Hey, I believe be that. right there going to the, you know, the, the brunches that. with the exclusive invitations, Facts. you know, and I can be like, yeah, Jason came on the show years ago. We <laughs> right. go way back. Right. Episode 54. Yeah. So yeah, in yeah. any case, everyone check out Jason online. Follow him. Look out for Dear Men, which is coming as well. But fill up on that archival content for the lives of men also. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.